A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. Glad that you're with us today. We're going to be talking about uh, some of the latest Antigua nonsense from the New York Times. Yeah. A, uh, well, we'll just start with this headline here. Take a look. Six gun shops, 11,000, quote, crime guns. A rare peak at the pipeline. Yes, the New York Times thinks that it's stumbled onto a big story. Uh, a uh, small number of Philadelphia area gun shops that they say are responsible for a disproportionate number of quote unquote crime guns. Those would be not guns that are actually uh, or automatically uh, used in a crime, but guns that have been recovered and traced by the ATF. Two different things, by the way, which even the ATF will acknowledge something that the New York Times even acknowledges and then proceeds to ignore uh, in its own reporting. Yeah. So uh, the basis for this story, they say, is a uh, House committee, a House Oversight and Reform Committee uh, that uh, they say obtained a new batch of tracing data uh, showing again that a, a small percentage of gun stores According to the gun control group Brady, uh, 1.2% of Pennsylvania's licensed firearms retailers accounting for nearly 57% of the firearms that were eventually traced uh, by the ATF, in some cases years after they were sold. To the gun control groups, this is evidence of wrongdoing on the part of these firearm retailers. As the New York Times outlays, uh, from 2014 to 2020, six small retailers in South and Northeast Philadelphia sold more than 11,000 weapons that were later recovered in criminal investigations or confiscated from owners who had obtained them illegally, according to an examination of Pennsylvania firearms tracing data by the gun control group Brady. The report's conclusions confirm, they say, what law enforcement officials have long known, a small percentage of gun stores accounting for 57% of firearms that ended up in the hands of criminals through illegal resale or direct purchases by, quote, straw buyers who turned them over to people barred from owning guns. Now, that could be what's going on with these gun stores, but that's not necessarily the case, which even Brady, however reluctantly, was forced to acknowledge. T. Christian Heine, Brady's vice president for policy, told the New York Times, quote, there is a wide spectrum of behavior we're dealing with when it comes to these stores. The 1.2% of gun stores. Even within the 1.2% of these gun stores, Brady says there's a wide spectrum of behavior we're dealing with. He says the vast majority of dealers sell guns safely and often exceed the letter of the law, but, quote, some of them need support, some need more scrutiny, and some of them just need to be shut down. He said the uh, purpose of releasing this report was to pressure federal, state, and local officials to focus on countering, quote, the bad actions of the few. Which, if I really believe that, I mean, that'd be great, as opposed to, you know, tarring the entire firearms industry with a broad brush, which is, of course, what Brady and Giffords and Everytown and other gun control groups are really all about. They don't want to shut down 1.2% of firearm retailers in this country. They want to shut down firearm retailers in this country. They want to be able to sue gun makers and gun sellers for the third-party actions of criminals. So even if a gun is sold legally... And let's say it's stolen five years after it was legally sold. And the person who stole that gun then sells it to somebody on the black market. And the person who buys that gun on the black market then uses that gun in the commission of a crime. Brady thinks that the person who originally sold that gun at retail should be sued. 
and should be held accountable for the actions of that criminal. Not only the criminal who, again, stole the gun and then resold in the black market, but the criminal who actually committed a violent crime. So I, I, I don't buy the idea that, well, we're just hoping that the law enforcement can focus on these bad actors. Because again, we don't even know that these six firearm retailers that supposedly are responsible for a you know majority of guns that were uh, traced by the ATF between 2014 and 2020 actually did anything wrong. As the New York Times notes, again, however reluctantly, ATF officials have long argued against making any inferences from crime gun data in isolation without knowing the percentage of a store's overall guns that end up in the wrong hands. But that information, along with many other details about individual store operations, is not made public. No, it is generally not made public. I don't know how many burgers my local McDonald's sold either. Uh, well, that, that's a really weird thing to say that uh, why well, every farmer's retailer needs to report their total number of sales. That should be publicly available information. But again, what the ATF is saying, there are a couple of things the ATF has said in terms of trace data. One, just because a gun is traced doesn't mean that a gun was used in a crime. And just because a gun was used in a crime doesn't mean it's going to get traced. The number one reporting category for traced firearms across the country is found firearms. That's it. Found firearm. Now, I'm going to, uh, pardon my uh, hand popping in the window here, I'm going to look up, while we are talking, uh, the latest trace data that's publicly available for Pennsylvania. And I haven't looked at this. I'm doing this as we're talking. So this is from 2020. This is from the ATF. Uh, let's see. Uh, total number of firearms recovered and traced in Pennsylvania caliber year. Top categories reported. So these are the, uh, the reasons why a firearm was traced. In Pennsylvania, between January 1st, 2020 and December 31st, 2020, the number one category for firearms that were traced in the state, possession of a weapon. Now, that gun could have been legally possessed. We don't know. 4,056 traces for possession of a weapon. Three th the next category, 3,068 traces for firearm under investigation. Okay, so those are the two main categories. And the only other category that even had more than 1,000 traces associated with it was dangerous drugs. There were 1,179 traces of a firearm connected to a dangerous drug investigation. 868 found firearms. Then you get to 749 firearms traced as a result of an aggravated assault. 502 for unspecified weapons offenses. 403 for suicide. 399 for family offenses. 379 for homicides. 279 for simple assaults. 271 for firing a weapon. But again, the vast majority of these traces are simply for possession of a firearm or a firearm under investigation, which is not evidence that any of these firearm retailers did anything wrong. Uh, another acknowledgement, which is, and again, I want, I want to stress how weird it is that throughout this New York Times story, you have officials from gun control groups, Democratic politicians, saying, yeah, you can't read too much into the data. All the while, the New York Times is reading way more into the data than you should. Uh, they talked with Josh Shapiro, who is the Attorney General of Pennsylvania, a guy who, of course, is under a lot of scrutiny right now for uh, aiding NBC News and assisting their production of a uh, ghost gun story by allegedly helping 
to uh, build and transfer a ghost gun to an NBC News employee. Uh, Josh Spear is also running for governor as a Democrat in the state of Pennsylvania right now. And he says, quote, I have said for years that most crime guns come from a small number of stores. We need to do more as a state to make it harder for gun sales to lead to gun violence. But Mr. Shapiro, echoing the ATF, cautioned against drawing too many conclusions about individual sellers, adding that a small percentage of bad sales at a busy but otherwise legally compliant store could show up as dozens of crime guns. He also emphasized that the information, while useful, was incomplete because many local departments did not contribute tracing information. So again, we've got more caveats here by anti-gun groups and anti-gun officials saying, you can't read too much into this. All the while, the New York Times keeps trying to say, well, I mean, but there's got to be there's smoke. There's got to be fire somewhere. Now, to their credit, New York Times did speak to Larry King, vice president, senior counsel, senior vice president and uh, general counsel of the National Shooting Sports Foundation, who uh, they say went even further than Josh Shapiro, accusing gun control activists of trying to name and shame on a small business owners and singling out Brady for compiling misleading lists of, quote, bad Apple dealers. He said in a 1998 report by the ATF, which described gun tracing as a starting point. For investigators to unravel a defendant's illegal behavior that, in quote, no way suggests the dealer's culpability. And so what does the New York Times do afterwards? They literally try to name and shame two firearm retailers in the Philadelphia area. Uh, I, I won't name them because there's, again, no indication that they have violated the law. But the New York Times names them, call them up, try to get comment, didn't get any comment. And then tried to shame those uh, uh, companies and their owners in the pages of the New York Times. Now, look, here's the thing. If there really is a small percentage of firearm retailers who are blatantly disregarding federal law, obviously that's a crime, right? And if it is such indeed a small percentage, the ATF has the resources right now to go after them. I mean, we've seen the ATF initiate uh, uh, proceedings to shut down gun stores based on nothing more than paperwork errors, much less uh, straw purchases. So don't tell me that the ATF doesn't have the resources that it needs. It clearly does. But for the gun control groups and the anti-gun activists out there, the ATF isn't doing enough. They want billions of dollars in new spending for the ATF. They want, and don't forget, under Joe Biden's latest budget proposal, $1.3 billion in new spending for the ATF. And in that $1.3 billion with a B dollars of new spending, there is more money allocated for uh, investigators to go out and, and, you know, go to these gun shops than there are ATF field agents who are tasked with breaking up gun trafficking rings and things of that nature. So if we really are talking about 1.2% of firearm retailers. I don't know why we would need to flood the ATF's budget with more money to send out an army of inspectors who can shut down these gun stores, again, based on paperwork errors, as opposed to putting more money in the field investigations that can disrupt the illegal trafficking of firearms. Unless the goal and the emphasis is to shut down the lawful commerce in firearms, right? And we know how Joe Biden feels about things like the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act. He wants that repealed because he wants to make it easier to sue any gun store and any gun maker who might have had anything to do with a firearm that eventually ends up in a crime. 
So as long as we're talking about naming and shaming, I'm going to name and shame Joe Biden and the gun control groups for their continued attacks on the firearm industry, as opposed to focusing on what even they say are the relatively few number of individuals who may be illegally selling guns and who are illegally using guns in the commission of a violent crime. Their focus continues to be on legal law-abiding gun owners, as well as the lawful firearms industry. Now, let's turn our attention to today's Armed citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report. We'll start there with a, a story out of Tucson, Arizona, and actually a series that KOLD in Tucson is running uh, called Free to Kill, all about violent felons being released on technicalities. Uh, they spoke with the police chief there in Tucson, as well as the Pima County Sheriff, who both say that they are seeing violent felons released from jail over and over again who shouldn't be. Uh, one, they say, a gentleman named Robert Rosas, a violent felon with extensive criminal history order not to possess a firearm who was released by the court system last year uh, while out on pretrial release. According to police, he shot, allegedly, and killed another man on the uh, south side of Tucson. Pima County Sheriff Chris Nanos told KOLD that the system is broken. He says, I've been here a year, and I'm like, I've seen enough. It's not working. KOLD reports, over the past three years, Roses pleaded guilty to dangerous drugs and assault charges, served time, was placed on probation, and then was arrested again last year after he fired a shotgun during an argument with a neighbor. Now, he was already under court order not to possess a firearm. He's arrested. He is released to pretrial services on a $5,000 bond. Despite the fact that Roses has been arrested for 10 felony offenses over the past 30 years, 27 misdemeanor arrests over the past 30 years, four convictions. His probation has been revoked only once, though. He's absconded from parole twice, but he's only had his parole revoked once. Uh, 20 arrest warrants for failing to appear for court hearings. So here's a guy who has a history of not showing up in court, of not following the terms of his probation or his parole. And yet, even after he was arrested for not just illegally possessing a firearm, but allegedly shooting a gun when he wasn't supposed to have one, very low bond, and once again, back out onto the streets, he uh, failed to show up for a status conference on June 30th of last year. There was another arrest warrant that was issued and then rescinded. He missed another court hearing in July. Another arrest warrant was issued. And then six days after that, he was arrested for murder. Sheriff Nano says uh, he is concerned that some violent felons are getting a low bond without having to set up the right supervision and resources to ensure that they're staying on track to avoid being sent to jail. He says that many of these are, uh, you know, poor, lower income defendants. Uh, you don't want to set such a high bond that, uh, you know, they have no ability to, to make bond. Unless, of course, they shouldn't be released to the streets because they are a danger to the community at large or you're afraid they're not going to show up. You know, listen, I understand the rights of the accused don't disappear. At least they shouldn't. You've been accused of a crime. You've not been convicted of a crime. But there are certain conditions that allow for individuals to stay in jail while they're awaiting trial. And chiefly among those conditions, again, are a danger to the community and a concern that they're not going to show up for their court date. Now, when you've got a guy who's got a violent criminal history and a history of failing to show up in court on those charges, I'd say that both of those conditions had been met. But, for Mr. Rosas, it was uh, just business as usual. 
and a uh, little amount of cash. He was quickly back onto the streets and uh, now again facing murder charges. Today's Armed Citizen story from uh, the Boulder City Review in, uh, I believe this is Boulder City, Nevada, is that right? Brandon Wunsch facing uh, 14 charges, police say, after uh, breaking into a home and being shot at the homeowner while he was trying to evade police officers. Yeah, Wunsch is being charged with felony for not stopping at the scene of an accident. Uh, involving death or personal injury, as well as misdemeanor charges of disobeying a peace officer, endangering other persons or property, disregard for safety of persons or property, resisting a public officer, failure to render aid at a vehicle accident, uh, and a host of other uh, traffic offenses, uh, including driving with a license revoked for a DUI. He had a preliminary hearing uh, uh, this past Tuesday. Bail was set at $38,000. If he bonds out, he is going to have to wear a uh, electronic monitoring device, which, of course, does absolutely nothing. The uh, charges against him stem from a wellness check in Boulder City. Uh, back on April 23rd, he was reported to be sitting in the driver's seat of a car with his eyes closed, sweating profusely. Uh, Boulder City officers made contact. He refused to roll down his window unlock his uh, car or exit his vehicle. They were able to determine his identity, and they realized that he had multiple warrants for his arrest. Uh, he ended up driving off. Officers lost sight of him, but uh, there were some people who were visiting from Denmark who uh, told them the direction that uh, he drove in. They caught up with him uh, before he crashed into another vehicle there in Boulder City. And then after the crash, he ran from the car. Officers continued to search for him. They heard the sound of gunshots coming from nearby, and they ran towards that sound, pursuing one through a number of backyards. Uh, according to police, they located a homeowner who had discharged their firearm at the man. The homeowner stated the man was trying to crawl through their dog door. It was attempting to hide in the home. Wunsch apparently not hit. He was eventually found in the desert area behind the homes where he was surrounded and uh, taken into custody. Uh, neither Wunsch nor the person in the vehicle that he hit were injured. But uh, there you go. He is uh, facing some serious charges. The homeowner not facing any charges for acting in self-defense and glad that uh, those shots were enough to... Send Wunsch scrambling out the dog door. Finally today, our good deed of the day, in the right place, at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing, an off-duty police officer in Bradenton, Florida, who saved a motorcyclist's life uh, in a crash that did claim the life of another, Jessica Sirignano, is uh, relatively new to the Bradenton force. Um, hasn't been there long. But she had just finished her shift. She was on her way home. When she ran across the scene of this horrible accident, a couple who'd been thrown from their motorcycle uh, and were laying on the highway uh, there in uh, Palmetto, Florida, she uh, turned around, obviously, uh, and stopped seeing what's going on. Just because she was off duty doesn't mean she was going to drive right by. Sirignano said, my friend that I lost in a car accident spoke to me. She put me somewhere to save another person's life. This was back on January 29th. Joe Stroop and his wife, Martha Stroop, uh, were involved in a hit-and-run crash. And uh, that was the couple that Sirignano ran across. She got there, I mean, she stumbled across the scene before any other emergency personnel and did everything she could to try to help both of those individuals. She said, my job was always to have this moment of actually being a lifesaver. Martha Stroop's leg had been cut off below the knee. She was losing a lot of blood. Sirignano was able to apply a tourniquet to her leg, stop the bleeding, perform CPR, and Martha Stroop actually regained consciousness. She told reporters, quote, I believe my husband sent her. 
because at that point, my husband probably knew that he wasn't going to make it. Sirignano tried to save Joe Stroop, too, but uh, his leg dislocated. He had head injuries. Sirignano took off his belt from around his waist, tried to use it as a makeshift tourniquet to try to stop the bleeding, began chest compressions, uh, and actually got a pulse. Uh, Manatee County EMS arrived on the scene, took both of these troops to the hospital, and that is where Joe Stroop later passed away. Martha Stroop has since recovered from her injuries, and Officer Jessica Sirignano awarded the life-saving award this week at the uh, Bradenton County City Council meeting. Joe and Martha's son, Ryan Stroop, who is an EMT there in Manatee County, said that he was grateful that the off-duty officer was there to help his parents, saying, quote, without her, I wouldn't have a mother and already lost my father. It's nice to still have my mother with me. Without Jessica, she wouldn't be on this earth. So in the right place, at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing. Jessica Sirignano with the Bradenton, Florida Police Department, we thank you for your very good deed. And that is all the time we've got for you on this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. I want to thank you for being a part of the program as always. Don't forget to check out BearingArms.com, the website, throughout the day and over the weekend for even more Second Amendment news and information that you need to know about. You can always become a VIP subscriber as well. Just go to BearingArms.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code GUNRIGHTS and you can get a significant savings on your VIP membership. Is our way of saying thanks for you showing your support for the independent pro-Second Amendment journalism we're doing at Bearing Arms. We're going to give you exclusive content, news stories, analysis, things you won't find anywhere else. Because your support does matter. And it does make a difference. Thank you so much for being a part of the program. Hope you have a great weekend. I'll see you again here on Monday with another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. But until then, be well, be safe, and be free.